0: Oh, yeah. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science. Happy hour. It is Friday, January 22nd. Super excited for all of you guys to be here. Hopefully got an opportunity to check out the new podcast that was released today. Did an episode with Dr. Christian Bush. We talked about his book, The Serendipity Mindset. That book is hands down like my favorite book of 2020 i uh, absolutely loved that book and absolutely loved having an opportunity to speak with him so i hope you guys get a chance to listen to that episode um probably one of my favorite ones from this year other great interviews happened this week i got a chance to interview uh, somebody i tremendously look up to james altisher uh, so i got a chance to um talk to him and interview him and i'm excited to release that episode sometime in the near future uh so room is filling up we got a lot of good friends here thank you everybody for swinging by we got nicole back in the house we got my good friend john sebastian tom is in the building we got a, a winnipegger in the house we got Mithul patel we got uh Tom, Monica, Giovanna, Koshal, man, so many awesome people here today. Um, How's it going, everybody?
1: It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood.
0: Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, super happy to have you guys here. Um, So, standard protocol, guys, if you guys got a question, um, first one to take the floor gets the floor, but while that person is asking their question, go ahead and just type in your question into the chat or just say that you have a question. I'll be sure to put you into the queue because i'll be monitoring the chat um so at this point whoever wants to go with their question is more than welcome to we got a week in the building too man good to see you again christian eric Yo. oh, how you doing man pretty good right on so um hello everyone yeah if anybody has a question yeah. man go for yeah. it um, i'm happy i'm happy to open the floor so go for okay, it i can go for, oh sure. Yes, right, go ahead, ahead.
1: Okay, um, yeah, my, my question was just around um, doing hyperparameter optimization. Uh, just a general, like when you're starting to do that, um, how do you kind of decide, I guess, how many parameters you maybe test at a time and, um, how long because you don't want it to spend like two hours or all night running a model trying to to optimize it so do you just start small and then kind of pick things from there or how do you maybe approach that i guess is my question
0: yeah this is an excellent question i can't wait to hear um, everybody else's input on it but personally what i do is i'll start with um Some form of like interval bisection where I'll start maybe some small value of a particular parameter and then do a larger value of it and then pick something in the middle and then kind of hone in that way. Um, But when I define my search space, I kind of I I define my search space as a function of my input data set, because if I'm going to be arbitrary, I'd like to be arbitrary within reason, right? so for example if i have some number of rows and some number of columns maybe for a particular hyperparameter where it's reasonable i would define my search space as maybe going from the log of the number of rows to i don't know the square root of the number of rows right so it's like a a reasonable search space but i mean it's being arbitrary but i have some intention behind my arbitrariness. Um, but I'd love to hear how other people do this. Uh, ben, how do you tune your hyperparameters?
2: I use data robot. <laughs> is that a lame plug? No, dude, you... that's all actually good. um I have to throw out some other competitors, I know there was like an auto glue on that MXnet pushed or the Amazon team pushed from an Amazon employee. Um you've got H2O. So you have some open source projects where they've tried to take it on. And then is it is it teapot? Teapot's the other one, Uh, which is super exciting because you kind of bring this AI layer to the task of hyperparam search and tuning. Because it's not just you have the dumb way to search. The dumb way to search is kind of the incremental like, hey, I'm an idiot. And I'm not saying anyone's an idiot because everyone's done this like, hey, I'm an idiot. I'm just going to like incrementally search. But then you have some more sophisticated techniques where there's a little bit of... um, Intensification and diversification—that's what people talk about. So, if you find something sweet, you should kind of oversample it. If you find—if you're, you know, if you're not finding success, you should diversify. Um, those are some of the open source available ones. But me, selfishly, personally, I would just use DataRobot.
0: I'd love to hear Tom if you got any input on this. And then after Tom, we'll hear from Nicole.
3: So this relates back to my roots in multi physical system modeling too basically doing a parameter sweep is what the way i see it although hyperparameter is a good term for it but um i like what ben said and i really liked what you said harpreet it's a spirit of uh, don't do it on some type of linear scale is my first big watch out for do it on something more like a log scale or a power scale and this way you can automate it reasonably you can start to look for uh you can have it set so that if it found the last best one on an endpoint, the top one or the bottom one, and I'm just talking three points, then you know to keep going and just to shift your scale. Um, But if it lands in the middle, you know you can stop searching on that particular parameter in that loop. However, the sad thing is once you have optimized one of the other parameters or you're going off again, you need to re-include that one. But if you just do something simple like a star search, you might know this by don't and, and get it on something like a log scale, I think now you can begin to automate things and it makes it go better.
0: Thank you very much, Tom.
3: Uh, Nicole, do you
0: have any, any insight on this? And then after Nicole, we'll go for John Sebastian and Mikiko on how to tune hyperparameters.
4: I posted a paper into the chat and I'll post it again for those who are just joining. This basically describes how a researcher determined that you can use the the initial outcomes of training as an input to determine like how to set then your hyperparameters. And, um, and it helps to identify whether the model is overfitting or underfitting. And then that suggests the, you know, the optimal settings moving forward. So I won't spoil the paper. I'll let you guys um, hear it or read it rather from the source. Uh, but it's, it's definitely a good one. And this researcher, Leslie Smith, um, has a lot of good work in the experimental space.
0: I don't. I know what I will be including in the newsletter next week. Thank you very much for that. I've got a bookmark, and I'll check it out. Uh, John Sebastian, Makiko, and then uh, Dave Langer. How do you guys tune your hyperparameters? What's your methodology? How do you, how do you go about doing this?
5: Well, I'm afraid I'm not going to add up uh, anything new because I basically uh, I would do pretty much the same approach as you described uh, uh, during your first intervention. So, uh, so yes, this is. Pretty much like word for word what I would have done, uh, what what I usually do right from the beginning. So, sorry, but no new inputs from me.
0: No problem. I mean, we're at DSDJ camp, so we kind of think like <laughs> uh, Makiko, are you still here?
6: Hey, I am. I'm trying to figure out an appropriate Zoom background because I you know, uh had to reformat my entire uh, Mac. So uh I'll have the video on in a little bit. Yeah, in terms of hyperparameter um, hyper parameter tuning, um just a quick question is is this for a standalone project or is this for like in production?
1: Austin, what is this for? This is just a standalone project. Yeah.
6: Oh. Yeah, for standalone, like everything that everyone said um, is totally correct. Um, when you do eventually, like for example, move to sort of a production system, then it becomes less about like how do you sort of like hand tune parameters, and more like how do you thoughtfully um, first off set up like uh, logging and sort of notifications um, for when you know model performance sort of degrades, and then also some of the packages that like for example Ben like mentioned like Teapot. I've heard some really great stuff. And I think there is a move to like auto ML for at least like hyperparameter tuning. So yeah.
0: And it'd be awesome if you can start implementing into your workflow um, some type of tool to help you track your experiments. So MLflow is a great one that I use. Um, I used to do this by hand because I just didn't know about MLflow and it has been a game changer and and a lifesaver for me. Dave, how do you go about um, deciding what your search space is going to be for your algorithm?
7: Simple. I try not to do it if I don't have to. I tend to prefer algorithms. I mean, I've had to learn the hard way. I tend to prefer algorithms that don't require a ton of tuning. Uh, For example, um, I would prefer a random forest, if at all possible, to XGBoost because XGBoost just has a much wider search space for finding the right collection of parameters. If I can get acceptable business performance out of a simpler algorithm like the random forest, why wouldn't
0: you use it? Thank you very much, Dave. Um so does anybody else have anything to add to this segment? Otherwise I'll move on to uh, a question from Anas. Um
3: I have a related question. And uh I, I gotta confess, I I don't even have a clue on this one. <laughs> so I'm it, it may be too deep here too. That and that's okay. But let's hang on a minute. Will you turn that off for just a minute, noise-wise? Thanks. Um Let's say you're choosing between algorithms, Like when I'm automating a pipeline, I'd consider several different models too. But then I'm thinking, am I going to choose the model based on the default hyperparameters and then just take the best model and fine-tune the hyperparameters? Or do I really need to try to fine-tune the hyperparameters on each model to choose the best model? And I confess, if someone asked me on that on the show, I'd say, I don't know. I have that same question. So I, I'm just curious what others would say on that.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's the experimentation part and the science part of all this. Um, you kind of go with what uh what I don't want to say what feels right, but you gotta go with you, you gotta go with some reasonable arbitrariness. Um, but any other points on 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 what Tom was saying there? All right.
7: Yeah, well, I guess if under the no free lunch theorem, you just never know generally speaking what model is going to be the most effective. I mean, you know you're probably not going to use a random forest for a high dimensional text problem. You're probably going to use an SVM or maybe a neural network, but generally speaking you never know. The problem becomes those how many algorithms are there out there that have reasonable defaults that'll give you reasonable performance? There's not actually that many. So it's kind of complicated. So, generally speaking, that's why I always throw random forest in the mix because it usually does pretty well. Generally speaking, with the defaults, you can tune it a little bit, but you don't have to. And then maybe I throw an XG boost in there. But if the XG boost, I'm going to have to do some parameter tuning. And I've had some good success using randomization techniques. So, you create a data grid of potential values and then you randomly select from them in permutations and just kind of find something that works. That kind of shrinks the search space, it's not going to give you necessarily optimality, but that's something you can do. Unfortunately, once again, if you're going to look at 10 different models and nine of them need non-trivial amounts of parameter tuning to find out which one's reasonably okay, it's a lot of work.
0: Random force is definitely one of my favorites as well. So much so that... Soon I'll be launching some merch and one of the shirt designs I have is a random forest shirt design. It's pretty minimalist, but I think it's a sweet, sweet design. Um, So once that's up and um, ready for purchase, I'll let you guys know. Um, So a question now, I guess we'll move on to from this topic and we'll go to the question from Anas. and I hope I'm saying your name right. uh, Right. And that's right. Um, All right. Cool. So, while he's asking his question, I just want to say next up on the queue is going to be Mark and then Carlos. Um, Carlos has a question about blockchain. Um, but if anybody else has questions, go ahead and just dump it right there in the chat. I'll make sure I add you to the queue. Uh, but the floor is all yours, my friend.
8: Thank you. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, my question is about uh, model deployment. So usually when you go like to YouTube and everywhere. Most of the tutorials are about Jupyter Notebooks. And then I remember from the last session, like at last meeting, I remember John was talking about, yeah, I had an interview and they were like, this is not a production code. So I think my question would be, uh, is it now an asset to be like good at deployment or is it a required thing now as a machine learning or as a data
0: scientist? I mean, you can deploy something simple, right? You can just get like an AWS account Right, and then what you could do is set up like a s three bucket that then you know when you drop something new in there, it kicks off a process that does an e t. l. process that then takes that transform data um, goes to some e c two compute instance model gets run on there, predictions get served, pushed back into a database, and then you've got like a miniature version of a deployed model in that sense right so it's it's not terribly difficult to do if you want to do something simple like that. Is it a good skill to have absolutely um but I'd, I'd love to hear what what Ben has to say on this topic.
2: Well, they, I, I love where this has progressed. It's become so much easier. So pick your favorite AI library. And I don't think it's very hard to find a Flask wrapper or some API where uh, people have just given you that code. It just works. Um, uh, but I think some of the things you hit on, the, the cloud is amazing. Like I'm a big Amazon fan. They make this really easy. So like serverless lambdas. There's so many things out there it used to be hard. That's the stuff that like the older people on this call could bring up. It used to be hard. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely is a
0: good skill to have. And I, I don't think it's as challenging to pick up now as it you know was maybe a while back. Um, I'd love to hear from, from uh, let's hear from Makiko on this topic. And then after Makiko, let's hear from anybody else who wants to talk about model deployment. You can just let me know in the chat and I'll call on you.
6: Yeah. So the the funny part is that we, um, like, so in the startup that I'm working on, right, like, we're very, very early stage. And we, in some ways, kind of are struggling, like, with the question of, like, do we build versus buy, you know? And so, um, and I think a couple of people have mentioned this before, um, like, Dave Langer had a really great response about how like, yeah, Dave, about how like, for example, uh, if AI is if, if AI and ML is something that you are selling as your core uh, product, and, I also, I, and Joe Reese also had a response on this too, right? Um, it makes sense there potentially to build because that is like a potential strategic element of your company or product. Um, but in a lot of cases, like for example, where you're not sort of doing the moonshot AI ML product, that's like revolutionary, right? <clears throat> like maybe you're just trying to like automate a bunch of processes or you have some more like you're, you're baking in AI uh, or as some, some people say, like AI native versus like AI inside, you know, is another analogy. Um, you know, there it kind of just makes sense to buy. Now, how that's relevant to, for example, your employment, you know, and your growth and your professional career as like a data scientist or an ML engineer. Um, so I think, you know, we start off with data science being like this bucket where like anyone could kind of like sort of fit in you had this like wild west of skills and experiences. Um, but what I'm seeing a lot more is that like, instead of having like strictly ML or AI practitioners, it's, there's this kind of uh, migration of of people who are engineers or people who are researchers or people who are analysts developing um, like AI, ML, data science kind of capabilities, right? So it's adding on to kind of existing functions. And so, so here's the thing, right? Like if you... If you want to continue growing your career, you will eventually kind of have to build up that skill set of being able to deploy stuff in production. Because ultimately, that's kind of what companies are paying for. They're kind of paying for, you know, getting immediate business value. Um, The companies where they, for example, like Google or Facebook scale, where they can kind of support, um, you know, research teams, it might matter a little bit less. Like you can kind of just sort of specialize more. But, for example, if your goal is to, uh, number one, be employable. Um, number two, make sure that your work actually has an impact. Um, you know, and also number three, like being able to sort of keep yourself open to sort of adjacent opportunities. It's really good to start like thinking about like, um, you know, like hashtag ML ops, hashtag like machine learning engineering, um, hashtag whatever. Right. Um, there are certain skills or or tools or platforms. Um, you know, it's good to get familiar with AWS just because they're kind of like leading the way in terms of companies being able to sort of like quickly kind of scale up those operations. Um, you still kind of have to know sort of like what you're doing. And a lot of times, you know, people who have like, for example, a software engineering background can kind of adopt into that a lot easier, right? Because they're essentially just going like, I have this sort of like paradigm for how, you know, code should flow or code should work. And then they can just kind of map it to existing like AWS products or exist or existing open source products. So I would definitely say like, it's super important. Um, you know, there's like communities like MLOps and ML engineering that are just kind of growing around it because, um, you know, it's something that I think lots of people are kind of facing that question of like, how do we, you know, how do we move beyond the hype and actually just like really make it useful? So, I mean, that's like my two cents.
0: Thank you very much, Biko Yeah, absolutely love it. And I mean, uh, just a, a quick, simple workflow to simulate model deployment, which I think would be good enough for, uh, to talk about in a job interview, good enough to get you experience, you could have, you know, maybe just you sim- simulate a batch workflow that runs when you upload data. So data will come in somewhat unstru- unstructured. You get it cleaned, put it into a database, and you need to make predictions. Then you need to store predictions in maybe another relational database. So you could just create an AWS account, provision S3, RDS, EC2, use a free tier, then just create an automated process that's going to serve predictions whenever data is dropped into an S3 bucket, right? So you can write a Lambda function that gets triggered when an S3 object is, is dropped into the bucket, um, and then when there's you know the new file comes in kicks off a process a series of scripts you know using lambdas um you'll have to figure out how to um use the the they call it stacks i think in aws um but yeah file comes in scripts kick off do some transformations then take that transformation uh pass it to your model have some predictions happen push that back to a relational database and you know, whatever just mini deployment um so let's hear from uh Let's hear from Mark on this, because Mark says he has uh, come from the res- perspective of someone making the transition now.
9: Yeah, so I'm <clears throat> not going to as if I'm some some expert. There's definitely much better experts in here, but um, I'm currently a data scientist who's trying to make the transition to ML engineering. Um, and specifically uh, about in August last year, I was laid off and gave me a chance to really think what I want for my career. I was like putting ML in production. Um, and so especially for like, the interview process being very intentional, like where you're currently at and then where you wanna go. So when I did my interviews, I said, hey, here's my skill set. here's where I wanna add value, but I wanna be an ML engineer eventually. Um, how can I do more production code things? And that really tailored me to jobs that actually could provide that to me and provide those learnings. And then once I was in that role, um, and also what Harpreet said, that like you can do your own kind of self-learning as well. But the thing that's been the most helpful in the past six months in my current role where I'm learning how to write production level code is uh, is, uh code review just having people who are engineers actually review my code and say like, Hey, here's this better way to do, it. or like, Hey, I read their code. And like this is object oriented programming, <laughs> please do this instead. <clears throat> it's been really helpful. And like my, my most recent project, I, I built an NLP pipeline. Um, it was probably the hardest project I've ever done, but it's been the most growth I've ever had because I actually had um, an engineer Basically, mentor me a little bit um, in that role, and a big part of that was because in my job search, I specifically asked for that, and that was like one of the things I wouldn't kind of back down on.
0: Absolutely love that, Mark. Thank you so much. Um, any other tips or advice on this topic of you know being able to to have experience deploying models? Um, the Importance of it, I guess the importance of it can't be understated. But you can do a miniature version of it yourself, and you can kind of understand the. The workflow and, and the pipeline um you know if you want to put it behind um an api or whatever that's up to you how complex you go but there are so many resources out there that could you know help you follow along so better you know the sooner you get that experience i think the better so definitely go.
2: i love it. that our, uh, i love that if i could just throw on real quick because you actually double dip because you get a to Z, you actually did put something in production by doing a project, but you doubled it because you got passion credit. And so sometimes if you're fighting for the MLOps position, you don't, you can't land that experience. If you have enough of these little projects, it speaks volumes. So definitely count your personal projects if you get them all the way to like inference API, just, yeah, you
0: know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so Mark, you're up next. So you got a question. Um, go for it.
9: Yeah. So uh, something, you know, I'm, I'm currently growing in my in my career and something I noticed when I first started working in tech was I worked in operations. And a lot of the projects I did or tasks essentially was like if I did more work, I got more done. The outcome I got happened. And now I'm, I'm getting further in my data science career. The projects are much more complex and more what work does not equal better outcomes. I'd be much more intentional. And so I'm just curious, and it's probably a very subjective kind of response for everyone, but what strategies people use to like not burn out because, you know, doing the sprint's not working anymore, but also like, you know, make better decisions um, as you're growing your career and doing more complex
0: work. I think the key to not burning out, the key to making better decisions is just having a, a certain stillness in your mind, right? I think that is probably the key to getting there. I know that's probably not the answer you're looking for, but for me to achieve that, I found that just journaling and writing my thoughts out every morning has been tremendously helpful. So I've got like I've got like four journals that I write in, right? One is just a complete brain dump where I just dump everything out of my head. And then another one is something that's more intentional, talking about how I'm going, what I'm planning on accomplishing today. Um, you know, something along those lines, it's called the six minute journal, highly recommend it. And I just find that to be helpful. It just helps me clear my head and clear my thoughts. Um, and it just, there's, there's less noise in my mind throughout the rest of the day when I do that. Just, it's more still, it's more tranquil and I'm just able to just do things. Um, I don't know if that's the answer you're looking for, but that's, that's how I handle it. I guess I'd like to ask you, like, wh- how do you define burnout? Do you define burnout as like, I just, I, I hate data science, I can't do this anymore. Or what is, what is your definition of burnout?
9: I use it as a broad term. I think burnout definitely means different things. I guess one of those, I hate data science. I can't do this anymore. Um, but another one could just be like, I'm reaching the end of this project. I'm, I'm I'm working on this project, but I'm not working as good as I was in the beginning of this project. Um, and so like, again, that was like, a, if you approach a project with a sprint and not this marathon, <laughs> um, it may work if it fits in that timeline, but if it exceeds that timeline, you're going to be in trouble.
0: So I'd say maybe that you can you can reflect back on previous sprints, look at how much you were able to accomplish and then kind of set a precedence, not a precedent I don't know if if that's the right word, but using what happened in previous sprints, right? If you can use that as a benchmark for how the next one is going to go. Right. So then you could say, okay, well, I think we're overloading ourselves this time around because last time we tried to do this during a sprint, we had like 10 items left in the backlog and we didn't get a chance to get to them. Right. So that's how I would, I would do it. I'd love to hear from, um, Let's hear from Giovanna and then Ben um, on, on how you guys manage the burnout.
10: Thank you, Harper. Uh, I think that uh, a good advice is to work uh, based on priorities. I think uh, you, it's the best thing because your energy, you have to focus your energy in the things that are going to make you grow as a professional, as an um, everything is about what you want to achieve. So if you want to grow as a professional and you are learning more things in your position now, maybe you have to, mm, to make more effort to achieve your goal, but you have to find what is the priority and put all your energy there and distribute, um, I think, the how you want to achieve the the, the goal of your job and the role that you have as a professional I think you have to balance both of them because it's important that you need to grow in your position but at the same time to grow as a professional because I think you' you you are not expected to stay all your life in that position or in that uh, company so you have to to deal with that
0: thank you very much let's hear from let's hear from Ben and after Ben let's hear from Carlos, and then we'll hear from Jennifer and Pakiko. So just remember, as are in
2: line. <laughs> I, I love this topic because I feel like colleges don't really prepare you for it, like mental health management. <laughs> there you go, go get a job. And actually, I had the experience this year where uh one one of I had a data scientist on the call, and he started crying. And it was one of those things where like you can break. Like everyone on this call it doesn't matter who you are. If you're not managing this you can reach a breaking point that will shock you. And, and like, he was fine, 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 fine. And then like within a few days, just completely broken. And then it's like, holy shit. Like you haven't taken a vacation during all of COVID, like get your ass on a plane. And so he took a whole week off, went to some tropical islands with his his family and he's a different person now. <laughs> so it's like, um, so I, I think the takeaway is, you know, you, no one else knows you. And you should be in a constant discovery on how to manage your own mental health, whether it's exercise, meditation, everyone's different. And if you're at a breaking point, you need, you need to manage your own mental health and you can't expect someone else to do it for you because bosses get busy. They don't know what's going on in your head. So, so for me getting outside, bike riding, there's lots of things that I do to help with that.
0: Thank you, Ben. Carlos, what about you?
2: I was going
11: to say something that I, I follow a lot of salespeople and sales is interesting because it's really like output oriented and not like input oriented, which is great. And one of the things I get in the newsletters is sharpen the saw. And I put in the chat what that means, but essentially like you're not really paid in data science to put 40 hours in on your coding. You're paid for like the outputs of your products. And so if that means you can do that in 25 hours at peak productivity, do that and spend the other 15 manipulating your life to have that perfect 25 hours consistently, so, I mean, like, exactly what Ben said, like, get out, longboard, play basketball, do whatever you need to, and focus on, like, your output so that you're not, like, just sitting there, oh, I did my 40, and that's it. Because that's actually the worst situation. It's just, like, you do your 40 and you go home. That's really what they don't want from you. They want your excellence. Um, and if you can do that sustainably at 25 hours of excellence, like, that's awesome. Spend another 15 having fun. A lot of people do that. Oh, by the way, a lot of people are not working 40 hours a week. I don't know if people want to admit that, but uh, I don't do 40 good hours most weeks.
0: Thank you very much, Carlos. Uh, Let's hear from, um, let's hear from Monica on this and then Mikiko. go.
4: Yeah. um, So from a project perspective, I want to put a little twist on this and um, some experiences that I've had in the past is you kind of look at a project as one chunk oftentimes and you work to get that huge chunk done. And oftentimes when you get to the end and you present your project, your product to the stakeholders, they're like, mm, that wasn't quite what I was expecting. So my advice would be to kind of uh, break it up into smaller milestones. And then at the end of each of those milestones, go back to the stakeholder and have that conversation with them to kind of check base if you're even moving in the right direction. And I think that's a good um, a good thing to have those breaks and that feedback to make sure that you're still going in the right direction and you're able to, um, get motivated again in some instances where you're like, okay, you're doing a great job. This is what needs to happen next. So then you're re-energized and ready for the next milestone.
0: Absolutely love that. Thank you, Monica. Uh, Makiko, how do you manage not burning out?
6: Yeah, it's, it's funny. Cause I, it, it, I'm a little struggling with this a little bit right now. Um, so something so some some advice that people have given me um is first off uh think about kind of like the sum of your i don't, I don't want to say the sum of your life's work but like uh the sum of your life so typically what happens right is like we get a queue of like stuff to do um and then we're like okay we'll try to like you know uh fit in stuff into the calendar and kind of like just try to optimize it um but what i've seen other people do is like Uh, For example, there's a professor that Cal Newport talks about. So what he did was he's like, okay, what I want to do is I want to spend 30% of my time doing research, uh, 30% of my time with my family, and uh, 40% of his time, uh, I don't remember what. Um, But, you know, essentially he said, he started off with the like, what does he kind of want his life to look like? Now, granted, it's a little bit different in academia, time's a little bit more unstructured but I do think you kind of want to start with intention. Um, Simon uh, Sinek, S- uh, Sinek, he has that book, Start With Why. Um, that's that's pretty important because you'd be surprised like how many people just sort of like just auto drive their lives. And then you kind of see the result like in poor health or you know professional goals or, or whatever, right? So it's start with that kind of intention first. Um, then like, so what I do is I, I waterfall method it um, is I start with what is my intention. Then I kind of subtract out. Okay, like literally how much do I have to do for work? Um, I personally don't like doing 40 hours of work. It's just not gonna happen. I'm like, if I can do like 20 hours, that'll be great. And then I'm like, okay, now how do I then sort of like do stuff around it, but then keep kind of pushing stuff into the buckets I do like. So that's one thing is like starting with intention, right? Um, Secondly, if it's a sprint, uh, what I also like to do is I have these like imaginary envelopes where I have like a treat yourself kind of thing. Got that sort of from, you know, community, or no, uh, Parks and Rec, right? Treat yourself. So I have treat yourself envelopes. I just like stack up. It's kind of like, you know, just dollars, right? Every day you get a couple dollars in there or whatever points. You can also track in habit RPG um, is a really nice one. I really like it. It Reminds me back of my, my, uh, you know, D&D and uh, wow days. Um, But that's also a really good thing because the reality is that the more you sprint hard, kind of the more you need to rest. So that's another thing I do is I, I do up the little envelopes where I'm like, this is my tree. This is my tree. And I just kind of like take out, right? So before quarantine, it was get a massage. Uh, obviously, that's not happening uh, at all. Um, but it could be something like, uh, for example, do digital painting. Uh, it could be uh, uh, design an outfit. That's like my side thing is designing like a micro capsule brand. Um just cuz I studied fashion design right so it's that that's one one other way to do it um it's it's always like treat yourself right it's like are you like working to live or living to work um yeah those are my like sort of two things it's like start with intention and then uh you know treat yourself on envelopes.
0: yeah i like that i mean like th- there's been times last year where i was kind of feeling the burnout right after you know not only do i do the the full time job mentorship with DSDJ, dj the podcast um some other side projects that i've got launching later this year um it gets it gets hard man like there's some times where i'm just like shit man like what am i even doing like do i still want to do all this stuff i need to cut the axe on something but um i noticed that that happens when i just look at everything i have to do as like a giant mountain When there's like so much shit i'm just like overwhelmed by it right um but I just start focusing on things that need to get done immediately. Right. So what is the task that aligns most closely with whatever objective I'm trying to achieve? Um, that's going to have the biggest payoff in, you know, long-term short-term what have you, I guess somebody's talking about the Eisenhower matrix here and I think that's a great tool as well. Um, looking at what Dave said there in the chat, I think that's uh, an interesting perspective as well. Dave, do you want to share that with us?
7: Yeah, I'm feeling a little, uh, a little out of place here. Uh, I'm not such a touchy-feely person by nature, so my, my basically, kept, when I was a manager and I was mentoring people in tech, I always told them, it's a lifestyle choice, it's not a job. If you're going to be an applied STEM in business, you are going to be constantly investing in yourself to keep abreast of the latest developments, latest technologies, all the things that you need to do. You don't get to rest on your laurels. I used to work in an insurance company a long time ago, and I used to work with people that wrote COBOL for decades, and that's all they ever knew. And they all got decimated in the 2000s with globalization, right? So you have to be constantly investing in yourself. It's just part of the lifestyle. So the trick is to find something that you love. And as I put in the chat, at one point in time, I wanted to be an enterprise architect. That was my thing. And working at Microsoft broke me of that. So I said, you know what? I'm not doing that anymore. I'm getting out of that game. It's no fun anymore. I don't want to spend all of my time on it. And that's when I ended up getting into analytics full time. This was, you know, I don't know, 10 years ago now. So that, and that hasn't changed. Once I got into analytics, it was I did my work and on nights and weekends, I was studying and learning new things, developing new skills, but I loved it. So it didn't seem like work. So it might seem a bit um, negative, (laughs) a bit pessimistic, but I don't think of it that way. I just think of it as that's the reality of working in applied STEM and business. And I just, find something that I love to do and do it. That's what I do.
0: I love it, Dave. Thank you. John Sebastian, I'm curious, like what's like the... So John Sebastian is a neuroscientist. I'm wondering what is like the neuroscience behind burnout?
5: Well, so well that was not my main field of study, uh, but just to connect pretty much everything that uh, was previously said, I think that Monica raised a good point and then Mikiko had some more good points. And I think even Dave... Without noticing it, kind of linked the entire thing together. So when it comes down to you know dealing with complexity, because you know that was the original question, uh, complexity usually most of the time is just like a the sum of small tasks. And if you're able to, and, and again, I'm just going to relate to what Monica was saying. You know, if the idea is for you to be able to break down t- this big task into smaller tasks, so that you can actually you know just take the whole thing in bite size. So that way you can actually see the end goal and you can actually, and then this is where I connect with what Mikiko was saying. So then every time you finish a small task you can actually reward yourself because ultimately this is how we work. You know, we have a task to do but it needs to lead to something in which we're going to get some sort of reward. That's, you know, the neuroscience thing, but that's also just a human thing. So if you can actually, you know, finish a small task, getting yourself a reward, and then move on to the next thing. And I think this is uh, basically how it connects to what Dave was saying, is that ultimately, you know, if you like doing something, of course, you know, there's always like the debate, you know, should you... um, should you go with your passion or should you work into doing something to see if you're going to be passionate? So, but I don't want to get into that um that debate. The whole ideas for you. Whenever you actually um start doing something and you like it, of course it, it will not look as as work anymore, but it will still be stressful. But stressful is not evil. We always describe stress as being something that is negative, but it's it's just something that's happening. Uh, in your body. And basically, you know, stress, it's also what drives you uh, whenever you're doing something that you're passionate about. So it's something that's actually good that could actually be good as well. So you just need to realize that. And once you realize that your whole mindset will shift with it. Uh, But you know, it's a process and you need to be conscious about it. So whenever you're facing complexity, it's just just think of it as just being like a, a collection of small tasks and just break it down so that you'll be able to see the end.
0: Thank you very much, John Sebastian. Mikiko also said Diffuse Learning by Barbara Oakley. I think that's great. By the way, keep an eye out for the episode I did with Barbara Oakley that will be launching sometime in the near future. Also, um, a couple of books from authors that are going to be on the show a little bit later that I recommend when it comes to to, to tackling big, big problems. One is called Cracking Complexity by David Benjamin. Um, that book is friggin' amazing. Um, I'm really excited to be able to speak to him about that. And then the book Uh, the the interview i'm releasing next um friday with uh uh, fred pellard is called how to be strategic and that's the book of the same name as well i highly recommend both of those for how to break down and solve big big challenges lots of great advice there in the chat as well so hopefully you got what you needed mark
9: um yeah no that was that was perfect that i mean my original question was around complexity but the 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 shift to burnout was actually a much better conversation so i i really appreciate everyone's everyone's comments and it is so helpful
0: all right i guess i must have heard the question wrong or read it wrong when it was on my screen but looks like you got both both <laughs> both things covered all right cool let's go to carlos carlos you've got a couple questions uh, one about blockchain and then one about coder pad go for it
11: uh, let's get the blockchain one uh So, this comes to broaden this one a little bit. So, I'm doing an interview for a large tech company, my second large tech company um, interview, and it's going to be live CoderPad. It's going to be SQL and R and all this stuff. But CoderPad is like no autocomplete. Implication is I'm not supposed to look up documentation. Screens and stuff like that involved in live coding.
0: So, you cracked off there towards the tail end of your question. Uh, I'm not sure if Carlos has audio working right now. Yeah, I can't hear you right now. Um, but let's let's see if we can get him some some feedback. Has anybody here taken a coder pad interview? If you have, just go ahead and talk about it. Um John, I yeah. see end up. Yeah.
8: Hey, yeah. So I've I've done one for um Spotify and I've also done one for Facebook. And to be honest, usually like with Spotify, we're quite friendly with it. Um I got to choose the language um that I was coding in. And they were quite happy with pseudocode, actually. So it was kind of more to test, like, how to, I don't know, like, program a task efficiently, you know, rather than you remembering and recalling all the syntax. Because I don't, I don't think anybody really does, you know. I think you always kind of find yourself referring to, to Google or, you know, to talk documentation. So, yeah, that's my experience of it.
0: Anybody else done CoderPad or anything similar to that that could help Carlos out with some insight? Does't look like it um,
11: Sorry, can you hear me now the question was just like any experience with like the big tech company interviews that involve live coding uh, and like higher experience doing that because I, I, there's no IDE, no autocomplete, no documentation, no googling. so it's like very interesting.
0: yeah, I've never been in that situation. Um, Akshay, you said you've done some leap code is that anything similar to coderpad?
12: Um, it's more of like sample code. So you get a lot of interview questions from big companies and it's, it's a little bit guided. I would say it's not completely blank slate. Uh, but that's something i found useful in the past.
0: All right. There you go. I think in general with these type of, like in that scenario, um, kind of along the lines of what John was talking about, it's more just your thought process and the way you're thinking through, um, the, the problem that you're working on. So I think if you can just communicate and make it a kind of two-way communication with them and just talk about what you're doing out loud. Um, that could go a long way.
9: Um, I just posted a link in the chat, but there's this resource called interview query and they have an excellent blog where they talk about how to approach um, doing technical interview questions for a lot of the FANG uh, folks. And what I really like about this resource is that it's not just like, Hey, here's how you do it. Uh, how code X, Y, Z, but it gives you strategies of like how to talk to the interviewer, what type of questions should you ask the interviewer? How should you approach it? Um it's I wish I had it when I was interviewing you earlier for Fang.
0: Yeah, this looks awesome. Um check that out, guys. Interview query interviewquery.com. Um I'll be sure to post a link to that in the uh, show notes as well. So um yeah, I'll so just something.
8: like to add as well, like I think with the with the pad stuff, it's just important to remain relaxed as well because Ultimately you can prepare, but there's always going to be a curveball. Like, you know, you can't predict everything that's going to come up. Um, so yeah, a lot of it is about talking through four process. So for example, with the Spotify one, it was quite simple and I got it straight away. And you know, there's there were several stages to it um where they asked you to initially build some kind of loop and then kind of make it more efficient. And fortunately for me, it was something that I've had a lot of practice with so i got it straight away but then when i had the facebook one it was more of an sql type problem with their kind of specific chat databases and it took me a while to get my head around what was actually happening with the data and it required me to ask a lot of questions to clarify things so it's important to just relax and make sure that you're clarifying what the problem actually is that needs to be solved communicate with the interviewer as well and you should you should be fine
0: Absolutely wonderful advice, John. Thank you very much. Uh, Anybody else have anything to say on this topic?
5: Well, actually, uh, I forgot about it, but I did have one uh, maybe a year ago. And uh, just the way it went uh, was very similar to what John was saying. Um, And actually, I still remember what was the actual task. And actually, I use that task when it comes down to, you know, making demo for people. so I was sitting with the interviewer, and basically she asked me to uh, build a uh, an average streamer. And basically, what it was is that to be able to design classes in which uh, you would feed a, a number one at a time, and you just generate the uh, the average, and you, you you just keep track of uh, everything what's happening, keep track of the sum and the the count, and so on, and. Um, yeah and I think that uh so so the way it went is that she basically described the, the entire problem and then I started coding a little bit and as I was coding, she would uh specify some new um rules uh that we need to to follow, so you know like just make sure that what would happen if you were to um to, to consider like a character as opposed to a number? So could you add like a, a function that would take care of this uh, within the class? And yeah, so I, so actually it was more than a year ago. It was two years ago. I remember that I failed the, uh, the interview, uh, but yeah, it, it was a learning experience because at that time I was not all too familiar with uh, object-oriented programming. And uh, yeah, basically after that interview, I learned pretty much everything uh about oop but but yeah this is how it went for me and and yeah and sorry and yes just you know be cool be relaxed uh be sure to ask questions because they're not there to nail you they're they're there to still help you out because you know in reality when you're going to work like with colleagues i mean no one will expect you to well sort of but no one will expect you to to be able to do everything on your own so you'll be working in team so uh yeah You should be fine if you communicate with the interviewer.
0: And I think an important thing to keep in mind is just by preparing for these types of scenarios, these types of interviews, you yourself will become a better data scientist, right? You'll learn a lot. You'll gain skills just by having to prepare for this. So if you go into this with the mindset that, you know, win or lose, I'm still coming out on top because I've learned something and I've become better than I was last week. Um, I think that could help alleviate some stress or some some burden from that respect. Um, that's one thing I would add to that. So next up is John. John, go for it. And then after John, we got a typed question here from a audience member. And if anybody else has a question, go ahead and type it into the chat or just say you have a question so that I can add you to the queue. John, go for it.
8: Yeah, I guess. So, um, in the UK, often the data science process, like for getting a, a job as a data scientist is quite, quite long winded. And, um, a significant part of that process is a take-home task. And I found I've done quite a lot of these take-home tasks. And usually they say it's between, you should spend between four to six hours on it. So for example, um, I had a take-home task for Spotify. That they, they gave me a, uh, a seven-day time frame to do it, but ideally it should take you between four to six hours. And, you know, I've had similar tasks with other smaller kind of tech companies. So my question is around how others approach these. I've done probably about four or five of these now, and now I'm thinking pretty much I'm just going to build a standardized kind of pipeline to to deal with these things because i i I don't really have the time to be spending like six seven hours on it anymore um it's usually just to give you some idea about what the tasks are it's usually some kind of machine learning problem so it could be like a classification or a regression problem so does anyone else have like any tips on how to approach take-home tasks and what could you share like what's worked for you in the past
0: I think that's a excellent starting point for what you said, just kind of have a templated way about going through this because you're developing a set of principles that you're then going to transfer over to work. So I think that for sure is a great way to, um, to, to go about that. I'd love to hear from, um, let's hear from Joe with Bernie in the background about how to handle take-home assignments.
10: Man, I'm
13: probably the wrong guy to ask for this, honestly. So I I haven't interviewed in ages and I'm probably uh the world's worst interviewer when I have to. Um so I'm gonna pass the question on to somebody else, unfortunately.
0: No, no problem. So let's hear from um let's hear from 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 Dave. Dave or Tom?
7: Uh, unfortunately I'm in Joe's position as well. I'm old, so I don't really interview like that by any
0: All right. So I mean, I could.
7: Yeah,
3: I have a fun story. Um, So before there was even anything called data science, I was going through the Naval Nuclear Program, and I wasn't an instant, but I went through the same training and all of that. It was a very rigorous program, and I was going up for this certification. I was in this. It's not. It's it's a rigorous interview with three experts, and very early on in this rigorous review board. I thought I had missed a question, totally bombed it, totally failed. And I was known as the nervous guy in any of these reviews. And I just totally relaxed because I thought, oh, I've failed. I'll just you know, be polite and answer the question. So I was just totally at ease. And my manager came out of the board and he said, Tom, they said, they've never seen you more relaxed. And that was the best answers they've ever gotten from anyone, and I—it was like this. I, I still suck at not getting nervous in certain situations, but I'm just saying. I think I learned this from Giovanna too. She said it in one of our Saturday morning sessions the book about the importance of staying relaxed in the interview. And I'm—I'm I'm like Dave and Carlos. But I, I haven't done a lot of interviews later in my career, but I'm the worst at getting nervous in a technical interview. And if, if you can force yourself to stay relaxed, that's huge. But to the answer to these take-home evaluations, I, I cannot overstress really getting good at learning the machine learning pipeline. And um, if y'all would like, I'll try to dig up, yeah, I've got a link I could put in the chat for anyone that wants to review that. It's just a good way to organize your thoughts anytime you approach any machine learning project. I'll just put it in the chat and go back on mute. Yeah, so...
8: I guess, maybe from
13: as a hiring manager I can answer this question, having given take-home tests and assignments. Um, like, if I were to get... If I were to issue a take-home assignment, I would expect back something that um, is maybe the simplest way to solve a problem. So don't try and, like, over-impress the uh, uh, company with um, how complicated you can make stuff. I would say try and reduce the problem down to something that's really simple. Clean code... Uh, definitely um, abide by coding standards. If you're using uh, Python, use Pep eight. Um, I pay really close attention if you're using bad syntax in Python. Um, like if you if you violate Pep eight too many times, I'll just just qualify you out of hand. So because um, I think a coding interview uh, and technical interview is as much of you showing how you can demonstrate knowledge as much as you can uh, communicate in the style. Um, that's been presented to you, and so and, and maybe clear documentation or comments um, are necessary as well. It's sort of if you like gave a pull request to a project, it would be very similar standards, I would say. So but that's that's me. So.
0: so I'll give some general advice. So um, and then I'll turn it over to my colleagues John Sebastian and Makiko because we've done like literally hundreds of these uh, for data science dream job. So like I literally have uh, this week I've probably done like seven or eight like assisting with take-home assignments just because that's what we do in the office hours there. But without knowing too many details about your specific problem statement, I'll outline a few core things that you should make sure, right? First of all, just make sure that you have a well-organized repository structure with a clear entry point and a clear exit point, right? Make sure your top-level level readme file does a good job of talking about the problem statement, talking about what your approach is, and then you know, walking us through kind of how you're going about the project, right? Uh, make sure that you're making good use of, like Joe said, PEP8 standards. Um, again, this is all depends on what your specific case is, but make sure you have good use of OOP principles. Make sure if you're doing graphs that you've got a title to the graph. You've got your X and Y axes labeled. Like that's super important. If you've got a notebook or a series of notebooks, um, make sure if you have a series of notebooks that it's very clear where we start from and what the progression is right so that could be as simple as saying zero zero dash entry here zero one dash eda zero two dash feature engineering zero three dash whatever right And make sure it's clear and make copious use of comments right so make sure your doc strings for your functions are really up to par, well-defined, right? What goes into this function, what comes out, right? Make sure that you're walking us through your thought process because, like, I can't open your head and look into it and say, what was this guy thinking when he did this thing, right? So definitely walk us through what is going on in your mind when you're doing this, right? And additionally, like you don't need to include like all your dot heads dot info. You don't need to have like don't make the notebooks something where I have to sit there and scroll for like 45 cells before I get to something interesting. Right. If there's shit that's like not interesting to you and you're just putting it there just to show that you know how to do it, I'd probably remove that right? Because the point is you want whoever's reviewing this, make their lives easy, right? If I've got 150 people applying for the same job and I have to scroll more than like 10 cells before I get something interesting, I'm just, I got no time in my day, man. I got to move on. So I will gladly toss your, your project in the trash and just say, sorry. Um, And then give you no feedback because you made my life difficult. So those are some key general points. Um, John Sebastian, Makiko, what do you guys think?
5: Um, yeah, definitely agree with you. Um, I think maybe one more thing that I could add is probably to um, so focus on the problem you're trying to solve. And we see this too often people who are actually either generating like a model or even just answering uh, data analysis problems that are not actually answering the actual question that was asked. Um, that happens all the time. Well, quite often. And uh, one more thing that I would say is try to connect the problem you're solving with the business uh, that with a business problem with the business problem that you're trying to solve. Meaning, if you're generating a model, um, I mean, it's good if you report mean the metric at the end, but tell me what the metric will do, uh, how it's going to bring business value. So if you tell me that, Hey, you know, I'm going to have like a, a 90% accuracy, it's like good for you. Uh, but ultimately, you know, what was the problem about? Was it, were, were you trying to to do like a, a marketing ad campaign problem or were you trying to, to optimize like a, a sell process? If so, try to explain to me how this metric is going to affect the sales and try to come up, even if you just make up, numbers, uh, try to, 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 uh, to put value to the end result, and try to put it into dollar sign value.
0: Thank you very much, John Sebastian. Uh, Mikiko, I know you dropped some excellent resources in the link as well. Do you have anything else to add to that?
6: Yeah, totally. So um, from a, I guess, hacks standpoint, um, uh, first thing is definitely start building up your like repository of functions that you use. Um, You can just store them in GitHub, right, as like gists. And you can also look at other people's gists too. Um, Second thing is in general, you can't go wrong with a notebook, either in R or Python. Um, or like a Jupyter notebook, or like um, uh, I, sorry, I don't know what the R equivalent is. Everyone can you know yell at me in the chat, but uh, notebooks are really great um, because that's the whole point. Is they're for collaboration and communication. Um, as development tools, they're they're kind of shite, but you know for communication, they're great. Um, secondly, like you can have a template, uh, Jup- like notebook style so for me um I, I have a template one i use and uh, where i just have things like stubbed out for myself right um, not every problem is going to be the same but it just kind of helps to like cut down on time which is really nice um, third thing i would say is um if you don't prefer notebooks um definitely get used to like shortcuts or you know for example i, I like to use vs vs code so i have some shortcuts there is really nice um, another place i really like to look is kaggle notebooks um, for competitions, I would go to Kaggle notebooks, sort by the you know like the most upvoted, and you can get some really good examples of analyses there. Um, and then I'd say the Kaggle mm, notebooks, I talked about that. I dropped some links. Um, you know, for for example, like one is a walkthrough for a production data science notebook, um, and I also dropped a link to um, a series of like student. Capstones from Springboard—they're um, not necessarily all like the most amazing, and they were also developed over like a period of you know six months. But that can be maybe some inspiration, and, and you might find some functions that you can just kind of bookmark. Um, but that's pretty much what it comes down to. And then um, last but not least, um, for example, for Python, there's like three libraries that are used a lot, right? It's like uh, SciKit Learn. Um, Seaborn, and then, you know, I forgot. There's, like, a a third one. Maybe NumPy, right? Pandas. Um, Pandas? Yeah. Shoot. I know. That's so bad. I was just writing some code, too. I'm sorry. I'm only on my second cup of coffee. Um, So, the documentation for those is great. If you go to, like, the demos or the gallery stuff, Um, I also will just save off stuff, too. All these things I just, like, organize and save as links or, like, code pieces in, like, my GitHub or Notion. And that's just kind of like the way to kind of sort of hack it. Because I don't think you you don't really want to be spending time on like the code or the or the setup or the cleanliness. Those are kind of things you should sort of have going. You want to spend a little bit more time on like the, so for example, if you're going more for a data, analytics, data analyst or scientist role on like the insight, um, some interesting trends, even some recommendations. And if you're going for more of an engineering role, probably what you want to spend more time on is displaying like kind of best practices. You know, like for example, like CI/CD or um, you know unit testing and all that stuff. Um, yeah, that's my bullet point list of hacks.
0: Awesome, thank you very much. Anything else to add on this from anyone? Feel free to 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 just unmute yourself and jump in. Also, shout out to Al Bellamy. I just noticed that you're here. How's it going, man? Good to see you here. Um, Monica, anything to add about take-home assignments and how tips on how to do them properly?
4: Uh, I don't think I have anything necessarily to add. Everyone had really good points. I really like the idea of having a pipeline so that things can go faster every time you're working on it. A huge emphasis on solving the problem that they give you. Um, That's where you're really going to wow the interviewers is if you solve that problem um, because that's what... The whole point of it is it's solving problems um, and not wowing them in other ways. Like uh, a while back, I was taking one of those take home tests and thought it would be really cool to have my graphs in the, the color scheme of the company. I thought that they'd be like, oh, they, she gets us. She understands. And no, no, it didn't really work very well. But so while wow them by answering their business questions. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, make it make make it easy for the person on the other end reviewing it to see that you can easily come in and contribute value. So that's that's the whole objective with with the take home assignment, right? Um,
3: so my free real quick. Yeah, go for it. Edx, um, the free version of Microsoft's uh, data science certification coursework. They have an excellent series on storytelling, and then Power BI, which is essentially Tableau or uh, Google data studio, but I just think those are really good things to go through.
0: Thank you very much, Tom. Appreciate that. So, uh, John, hopefully that the
3: awesome takeaways there, let me know if you got any other
0: questions. Um, otherwise we can go to the next question.
8: Oh, thanks. That was really good. Everyone. Yeah. Very useful insights there. So thank you.
0: Right on. So another question that came in through the chat, this one is from Mutool, uh, and he's asking, um, he's got some background issues with background noise, so he can't unmute, but he's saying, how do you get around an issue where companies want to give their first preference to computer science, ML slash stats backgrounds in terms of hiring, having done interviews at 20 or so companies in the past, I've noticed this trend and it's kind of sad for fresh grads who are coming from diverse backgrounds to break into the DS field. So Matul, I'm not, Mistake, and i think you're working on your phd in physics which i think is a great setup for um data science and i mean even look around this room man like a lot of us don't necessarily come from computer science or ml stats background um so i'd love i mean mikiko if you could link to your post on medium about your journey to data science i think that'll be amazing because her background is not computer science or anything like that at all it's she studied anthropology and was still able to to, to, to do I this studied
6: monkeys throwing poop at each other during midterms David yeah. Attenborough was great it, yeah. I, I entered college biomedical engineering pre-med I exited out monkeys monkeys <laughs> cross
0: so I, I'd love to hear from from um from anybody who wants to 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 chime in here about you know how, how First of all, I would say this. First of all, how big is your sample size of companies that you're looking at, right? So ha- have you looked at a thousand companies and all, you know, a s- significant portion of these thousands are asking for computer science or ML? Or, you know, if you do come from a physics background like yourself, which is extremely quantitatively rigorous, um, do you have projects specific data science projects to showcase your ability to to do work. Right. So that's one way to kind of bridge the gap. Um, Tom, let's let's hear from from you here.
3: Just real quick. Did you say he's getting his Ph.D. in physics? Yeah, I think Matul is working
0: on.
12: I just wanted to jump in there.
0: Um, so I did my master's in theoretical physics
12: and I did some um, projects like personal projects in data science when I was trying to transition into Uh, the data science field Uh, but like doing interviews at companies I've seen that uh, even if you do some personal projects in data science they still want people from computer science background or machine learning and stats and this is not just me but I have friends who've done uh, like PhD and masters in physics and you know even now after a year they're still trying to find a job in the field and they're just getting rejected because of this so like
3: Let me me give you, I'll give you my experience real quick. So um, migrated into data science as a PhD in industry and didn't have a data science title for a long time, worked on some ways to kind of fix that. But what I found the tool is that um, I was very marketable to people or, or companies that were more aligned to my engineering background and still needed a data scientist. And I just stopped fighting it and found that, oh, I still love this. I, I love this part of the industry. And I get to be more data science centric, serving that industry. So I would just encourage you to be very open to places that are doing that needs someone with a physicist mind and a data science synthesis. You might find that you are the unicorn candidate to them. Just, just maybe just uh, apply more to those kind of areas like national labs, et cetera. Uh, you know R&D companies or R&D departments just a thought though and in terms of
0: you know like physics like i wish you were here last week when uh Shantana was was joining us so Shantana um she's got her PhD in in like physics as well and she was working at CERN for the longest time, like at the Hadron Client, looking for like this thing called the Upsilon particle. And now she's a machine learning engineer in industry. And she was having a great conversation with somebody here. I don't know if she's here today uh, with Megan um, about how somebody from an academic background can break into data science. So I highly recommend going, I'll, I'll link you to the to the video from last week. And I think you can find some great tips and insights there. Um, but I would say you can probably bridge the gap not only with personal projects but just making sure that your interview game is is on point right so making sure that you're communicating properly during the interview making sure that you understand the company that you know all of these other types of quote unquote non-technical skills that are important for data science make sure that you're capitalizing on those but i will link you to the discussion from last week i think you can really benefit from that cuz this is straight up somebody who studied physics that, that has made this transition. I'll try to put you guys in touch as well. Um, anybody else have something to add to, to this? Um, John, yeah, Dave.
7: So it's not directly related, but set the wayback machine to the 90s. Uh, when I was first getting started, I, my bachelor's degree is in economics and I wanted to be a software engineer. And back then, if you didn't have a computer science degree, you were unlikely to get a software engineering job. So to echo kind of what Tom was saying, don't be afraid to be broad in terms of getting a job anywhere. So my first coding job was programming COBOL on a mainframe. That's not what I wanted to do. (laughs) Despite what Joe might tell you, that's not what I wanted to do. Uh, But I took the job because it was a foot in the door. And that's usually what you need. You just need that first job, that first title, and that gets the ball rolling. And sometimes it might not necessarily be the perfect job, but just see it as one step along the journey. And that's going to be critical because uh, they, the company that paid me to be a COBOL programmer also trained me to be a COBOL programmer. And I only did it for nine months. Once they found out I knew C++, they had me do that instead. That's actually what I wanted to do. So it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been willing to do the COBOL job first.
0: Wonderful. Thank you very much, Dave. Um, so anybody else want to add anything to to this topic? I think it's a great topic, but it was something that we covered Really in depth last week. I'll be sure to link you to it, Matul. Some great insights there. Um, But if nobody else has anything to add, let's throw something in real quick. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, you know, I have a kind of non traditional or we'll call it eclectic background. um, And I've had a couple of conversations with people just because they actually were interested in somebody who didn't have that traditional background, but I didn't get to them to talk to them because I applied, because I threw my resume into a black hole, ATS, hoping for the best. I had those conversations, one, because the one person reached out to me after just seeing something that I had shared that I worked on, and another one I saw that they had posted that they were hiring and interested in talking to people. And both of those conversations were great and have led to like just open, you know, open uh, conversations that we're having, you know, moving forward that could eventually turn into jobs. And so, but neither of them happened because there was a job posting that I applied for and then got to a conversation. So I think that sometimes just starting starting the real conversations with real people, then they can see you as the context that in, in your context and how you might fit into their world as well.
0: Wonderful.
10: Thank
1: you
10: very much, yeah, Mike. I I just want to add that it's very important. Uh, it's an advantage to know about the industry. Sometimes, if you have a background in that industry and you want to jump into data science, and you know about that industry, they take you in consideration because you know about the business and you can be trained. And um, for example, here in Italy, uh, there there are a lot of um, Position that they said, okay, if you know about the industry, that is a plus. So I think it's something interesting. Yeah, that's a very very good
0: point, um, Monica. Have, go for it. Oh, never mind. And then Monica, then we'll hear from Mark.
10: Oh yeah,
4: I just wanted to say, like, data is literally everywhere. So with I, like, I have I have an accounting background. I got my first job as an IT information security auditor. So sometimes you just have to be creative, know what data exists in your area and what you can do with that data, and then maybe create a personal project off of that and show what you can do with data that exists in your world.
0: Yeah, that's an excellent point because you're dealing with a lot of the same issues in physics that people are dealing with in industry, right? So a classic example is for fraud detection, right? Fraud detection, you might have the issue of having a imbalanced classification problem where the fraud cases are very, very low compared to normal cases. Well, in physics, you're dealing with something similar, but it's the opposite scenario, right? Where you have too much noise and the thing that you're interested in is not as frequent in the data set. It's the same, like the draw those analogs between the type of problems that you're working on in physics to the type of problems that people will be working on in industry, right? Like a classic example I always use from biostatistics days is survival analysis. We did survival analysis in when I was an actuary um, and we did it as a biostatistician. And it turns out in industry, when you have subscribers, it's called churn. So try to find those correlations those analogs between the types of problems you work on in physics and what is happening in industry um so let's hear from mark by the way greg what's up good to see you here
9: um i just want to share a recent thing my friend did that i was really impressed by um just to change your perspective like not necessarily finding opportunities but creating opportunities so he got burnt out one of his last job and just quit he said, I'm just going to spend some time finding a new job. He went and got a subscription to Pitchbook, which is like a, a website for startups for funding. He went and did a data driven approach. He found all startups that were a series D in funding between the sizes of 60 and 80 people in um, healthcare. Then when he got that list, he did a deep dive search of all the news press releases to figure out what their pain points were. And then he developed stories for his top 10 choices of like, if he was there, what problems he would fix with his skill set. And then he went directly on LinkedIn and emailed to the, to the CEOs or different hiring managers and said, hey, I'm so-and-so. I noticed that you're in this position based on these press releases. I can do X, Y, Z for you. He literally had multiple companies say, we don't have a position for you, but let's interview. And one company actually created a position for him. So if you're finding a hard time finding a position, just like create one. Um, just being very strategic and taking a very data-driven approach.
0: There you go, man. Choose yourself. Sounds like that guy read Choose Yourself by James Altucher, because that's exactly the type of thing he would have done. Awesome. So, Matul, hopefully that was helpful. I will link you to the conversation from last week, which I think will be highly relevant to you. Next up, we're going to go to Akshay. And then after Akshay, we got Jacqueline. Um, So, Akshay, are you still here? Did you leave?
12: Yeah, so my question was around uh, decorators um, as functions in Python. I've been learning that lately and just kind of struggling with the whole approach of writing wrapper classes and passing arguments to that within the decorated functions. So wanted to know if anyone has any tips around how we can get best get on this object-oriented programming here.
0: Joe? Mm, I,
13: would, I would ask, like, what are you planning to use a decorator for? Uh, it's not for a
12: project. I'm just learning right now. So I've been familiar with functions before because I've been writing that in different languages. But this is something new for me as a decorator, and I'm just struggling how it's used in an actual software programming approach.
13: Um, you'll see it used quite a bit, I think, to consolidate code. I think the trick is the, the decorator itself, the, the wrapper class needs to be correctly defined uh, for other people who are looking at the code base. Um, cause otherwise it, you, you can get into like decorator hell pretty easy where she's like decorator, 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 and it's like pretty soon you're gone, gone bonkers. I, I would say definitely learn the design patterns of decorators and, and how to write them and how they work. Um, and then I would suppose if, if you're working on a team where decorators are used quite a bit, then you'll be equipped to, to understand how that works. But, um, I would say as a for general practice, um, Unless there's a reason to, I, I, I personally try and stay away from decorators in Python. But Matt, do you have any thoughts on decorators or
7: any opinions? Hold on. Sorry, just unmuting. I mean, my sense is more that these show up in really complex libraries and projects than anything else. And so I don't know, maybe other people have other opinions. But unless you're developing a really complex internal framework, it seems like they're not quite as common. But maybe you guys can cite some counterexamples to that.
3: I would say you might wanna focus more on context managers. Um, Decorators, they have their place, but the only, mostly it's been in web frameworks that I find them real valuable, like in Flask. Context managers are not so hard to understand and write, but, and I wouldn't say that it's super hard to learn decorators, but I I agree with Joe and Matt. It's rare that you really need to write one of those, but if you do, just be insistent in your Google searches. There was one day I just was tired of it and I wanted to understand decorators better. And I finally found a really good blog post that it wasn't a toy blog post. It really went through the details of how they were, gave great analogies. I I don't think I even saved it. But if you're just really understanding decorators in Python and then study multiple links till you really get it, and I but I think you might walk away saying, Yeah, Joe and Matt were right probably want a context manager or something like that.
7: In fact, what would be a good, I mean, I would look at some open source code for some existing web frameworks. That's probably where I'd start. And I try I, to
13: I, you know, across a lot of decorators in the Django framework. Cause I was having to like go into the inner guts of that thing for a long time. Um, so, I mean, I got really well versed in, in their use, but I think it just a lot of it depends on the team that you're working with too. And the coding style they adopt, but I mean, decorators definitely have a good place, but I think it's, that's good to know when you come
7: across them and want to use them. So, so okay. if I if I could just go ahead and jump in, actually, um, decorators are an old school design pattern, and they're not necessarily Python specific. Python has them. So, if you're interested in actually understanding the object oriented why of decorators, grab like the Gang of Four, the Design Patterns book, the original Design Patterns
0: book. It talks a lot about decorators
7: and the why they exist.
12: Okay, that's definitely helpful. Thank you.
0: Um, anybody else have anything to add on? decorators? Only thing I know about decorating is Christmas trees.
13: I was about to make a joke about that, but it wasn't too easy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, next question up we got is Jacqueline. Go for it.
14: Hi, everyone. So I would like to have a bit of feedback on a career plan I have right now. So my goal is to be a data scientist, uh, but I've also been considering some positions that are more like in the business side of it. So Specifically, um, business intelligence developers, uh, developer positions. So my idea behind it is that I would get to know a bit the business perspective, and also it would uh, give me time to build some projects on my own that uh, have more um, that have more technical uh, that are more technical. Um, But uh, yeah, I know it came up last week. I was watching the recording of The Office Hours, but um, there's this fear of getting stuck in a position early. So um, yeah, I I wanted to know your feedback on my plan. Like uh, what would you do to not get um, classified as a non-technical position? Um, What would you do to improve it?
0: Yeah. I think, I think, The plan sounds pretty good, especially if it's something that you're interested in and a way to not, you know, avoid that classification of a non-technical person is just do your work technically as as possible. Like you can still use the tools of the trade, I think, and accomplish what it is you're trying to accomplish for the business. Um, But I'd love to hear from. Let's hear from, let's hear from Greg from uh, on, on, on this topic.
15: Yes. So, so Jacqueline, you know, if I, if I understand well, are you, you, you're currently working with um, business teams at in your current space?
14: I'm not working yet. So I'm applying to okay. jobs and it would be in a business.
15: Okay. So I, I would say, you know, make sure you have a list of, Problems that you want to you want to solve. And then as as Harper said, solve them the most technical way possible. Uh, so and for that, you have to have some benchmark of how technical teams uh, solve these issues and try to solve them uh, the same way and then make sure you have a solid uh, storytelling uh, behind it as well. So whether it's written in verbal communication, practice on that because uh, regardless you're technical or not, you will need to be able to close that bridge, that gap business teams often say, is that when you're too technical, I don't understand what you've done to solve the issue. So um, again, uh, uh, you know, be technical as possible, but also be a great storyteller, uh, uh, so, so you can be sure to uh, uh, win on, every, on both sides.
14: Great, thank you. Any advice on improving a storytelling? Um, yeah, your uh, quality.
15: That's that's a, that's a that's a great question. You don't you don't really see that unless you guys know any. Uh, <laughs> so there's Kate storytelling course. Somebody said here. Um, I guess it it comes with practice, really, uh, right? So industry knowledge also helps, right? When you have a handle on. Uh, the, the industry, what you're solving, why you're solving it, uh, it becomes easy to explain, uh, what you do, uh, on the how to solve it kind of thing. So, uh, take some time to, uh, deep dive the industry itself so you can have a deep understanding on what, on what the issue, uh, you're trying to solve. And that to me really helps with storytelling, um, so, uh, and, and, and write, right? So, write and ask people to uh, read it. People who are outside of your uh, space uh, and ask them for feedback,
14: uh, and,
15: and so they will tell you whether you're clear or not with your storytelling.
14: Thanks,
6: Greg.
0: Love to hear from um, Mikiko on on this topic.
6: So, uh, one, I guess, one book I, I might recommend is uh, "Making Ideas Stick." So I don't remember which brother it's from, whether it's Chip or Dan Heath.
0: Both of them, made to stick.
6: Yeah, made to stick. Uh, but they actually have like a, between the two of them, they have like a series of these sort of like uh, pops eye pop communication books. Um, but they're really kind of nice. And like one of the things I sort of took away from the made to stick uh, idea was um, to instead of, sometimes like it's good to start with like a little vignette, you know, like, in order to sort of like contextualize or centralize people to the problem. Instead of just coming out and saying, like, okay, like this is a problem, it's like have a little sort of vignette, then you follow up with a you know the problem. Um, and then with uh, another book, there's like the Minto Principle. Uh, I think it's like the Blue Pyramid book. Um, but if you look up Minto too, like she also talks about like what's a really good way to sort of like structure your communication and analysis, um, including like the rule of three, which is, you know, uh, you you could, you have a point and then you structure with like three pillars. Um, yeah. One thing I will say though, like it is, um, so we used have the saying at this one company, which really should have been a signal to me to leave that company sooner, but you know, whatever um, was uh, be careful what you're good at, you know? So there's kind of like in a company, sometimes if you get really good at certain things, for example, like really quick, short analyses or, or all that jazz, um, sometimes they'll sort of like kind of keep giving you that work. You know, so it's kind of good to um, be able to recognize kind of when things uh, are just sort of like simple explorations that you can just kind of push aside, um, be able to triage those really quickly. And then you can move on to the projects that require a little bit more sort of technical sort of uh, de- depth and insight.
0: Let's hear from uh, Giovanna and and Dave on this, on, on Jacqueline's career path and plan that she's pursuing.
6: Okay. I was...
10: Uh, typing on the chat. Yeah, uh, it's uh, like I uh, don't say that you don't have a technical background. Focus on your projects and the things that you are able to do and show the projects and the experience that you have, you have gained uh, doing them. So uh, don't put in their minds the label that non-technical. So show what you are able to do. And if you know... Uh, You can get some information about that company. Maybe you have some contact on LinkedIn that work there and maybe to know what are the the issues that they are dealing with. Maybe you can go with some ideas to solve a problem and you can talk with them about that. that, And that is a great uh, way of make you uh, like a a spoiler yourself to make them feel that you are the person that they want in their team. So it
7: could be a good idea. Dave? Yeah. So as I mentioned in the chat, um, if your goal, and I'm making a presumption here, so forgive me if it's wrong. If your goal is to eventually become an analytics professional of some form, where analytics is what you do all day, be careful about business intelligence, because business intelligence is its own career path. It's its own thing. Um, It's a very worthwhile path. It can be quite lucrative, by the way, as well, but it's not necessarily a purely analytical type of position. For example, you can spend many years building assets, analytical assets for companies. You can become an expert, for example, in the SQL Server stack for Microsoft, build cubes and reports and data warehouses and all kinds of stuff. And that's all good and valuable to the companies that you build it for, but you don't do analyses. You're not doing analytics. So if you're going to look at a business intelligence position, I would advise being very, very deliberate in talking to the hiring manager regarding what the responsibilities are actually going to be. Because you can be extremely technical as a business intelligence professional, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're actually doing analyses. You might be writing SQL, you might be writing DAX, you might be building things, but you're not necessarily doing analytics. So just be careful if that is your goal is to be an analyst at some point.
0: Excellent. Excellent advice, Dave. Thank you very much for that. Um, Jacqueline.
14: uh, Thanks,
0: everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, Last call for questions. If anybody has a question, go ahead and just type it into the chat. I am also super, super excited to announce that starting February 7th, I will be hosting an additional office hour session every Sunday at 11 a.m. I think this will be much more friendlier for our friends in the EU and in, in Europe in general. Um, I'm partnering with Comet ML. We're going to be hosting the Comet ML Data Science Office Hours powered by the Artists of Data Science. I'm extremely happy to have this support for the show. Um, I hope you guys will be joining me for those sessions as well, because I know they'll be just as awesome as these sessions.
4: 11 a.m. What time zone, it,
0: a central time um, okay yeah so within the next week or so we'll get the infrastructure set up so you guys can all register for that um, it'll be a different room than than this room it'll be a room hosted on their own zoom account um, but yeah I'm, I'm really looking forward to that all right so I don't see any other questions in the chat. So I hope you guys got an opportunity to check out the interview I did today with uh, Christian Bush. It was one of my favorite books that I read last year, The Serendipity Mindset. It was absolutely amazing. I enjoyed the conversation I had with him. Next week, I've got an interview releasing with Fred Pellard. His book is called How to Be Strategic, also an amazing, amazing book. Um, I mean, I still can't believe that i interviewed freaking james altisher earlier this week um to me that was just mind-boggling that guy's a hoot. <laughs> yeah he's he's awesome man I, I love him um i'm a big fan of all his work and yeah so that was exciting for me to interview him um doesn't look like there's any more questions in the chat guys well, thank you for hanging around um take care we'll see you next week until then remember you got one life on this planet why not try to do something big cheers everybody